Today, we have the honor of bringing you Benjamin's story. We normally share stories out of the Acts 29 network, but today we will be talking about abuse that occurred at Bethlehem College and Seminary. John Piper. That's right, the John Piper is the quote-unquote chancellor of this school, and his teachings span far and wide in the Young Restless Reformed movement. Chances are, if you've attended an Acts 29 church, you have read one of his books, heard one of his sermons, or at the very least heard him referenced. Over the past year, there have been many notable stories of abuse to come out of both the school and church associated with it. And because of this, we have chosen to keep names in order to avoid confusion. When I personally first started to find my own voice in my own story, Benjamin was one of the first people to acknowledge and champion me. Benjamin was bravely raising his voice at the cost of much to warn others of the abuse happening within Bethlehem Seminary. I was drawn to his boldness and grace, and I respect him greatly. He and his wife, Chloe, have cared well for my heart as I have sought healing, and his openness about spiritual abuse has been an incredibly beautiful part of my own journey. Benjamin's courage and shepherd's heart to stand up to a system that promised security if he fell in line, but came with rules that meant dehumanizing others is commendable and inspiring. And as you listen, we hope you too are blessed by his bravery. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. All right, Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today. So like we mentioned on the intro, this is a non-Acts 29 story. Um, so we're excited to bring this story to our listeners. And uh, we're covering a new topic here. This is specifically about Bethlehem Seminary, which, Benjamin, you attended, correct? Yes. Yep. From 2016 to 2020. And it's so tricky because um, Bethlehem Seminary, Bethlehem College and Seminary, or BCS, um, it's very, very hard to separate it from the church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, BBC. So... I mean, I end up just saying Bethlehem a lot because it's just so intertwined. Like, if you're a student, you are most likely volunteering at the church, um, and the church meets or the the school meets in the church building and things like that. It's just it's kind of inseparable. They're they're so intertwined at this point. But yes, and for those that don't know, uh, Bethlehem is John Piper's church, and he was was he the founder of Bethlehem Seminary or the co-founder? Yes, I mean he did it with kind of a team, but he was definitely the initiator on that, and it underwent several different iterations before uh, BCS was formed. Um, but yeah, he was definitely the main initiator, and still the chancellor, still probably the main draw for a lot of folks as to why they end up attending there. Um, when I attended, there was a there's a college with different degrees. I went into the Masters of Divinity program, and there's also a Masters of Arts now as well. Um, all right, so we're going to dive into the John Piper world, Jonna. Are you excited <laughs> about that? Which is adjacent. It's so adjacent. It is. They're too. all so intertwined. Like we, yeah. we, in our free time that we don't have, <laughs> Jay and I like dig through old 
Acts 29 trainings and John Piper's all over those. And, yeah. you know, they're all just, yeah. I like to tell people, because we do get a lot of stories and we have a lot of listeners that aren't Acts 29. Um, but I do, I kind of say there's like one big cloth in this young, restless, reformed movement. And we're all just different pieces of that one big cloth that are all kind of there we go. the same. We're all quilted in. We're all grafted in. Into the oh, sadness. That's right. Into the, <laughs> into the sadness. <laughs> all right. So, into the toxicity. Yes. So, Benjamin, you are a pastor today. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, Small church in rural Indiana. Non-denominational church. A non-denom uh, church in Indiana. Used to be a part used to be a part of the Disciples of Christ, which is kind of mainline, kind of like your your mainline UMC, your Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the specific congregation disassociated with the Disciples of Christ in 2018. And so we're non-denominational officials. Okay. All right. So the big question I have is, why in the world did you decide to go to Bethlehem Seminary? <laughs> Absolutely. That's the question I still ask myself. Um <laughs> And it boils down to, I mean, a combination of things. Uh, we were, we, my wife and I, Chloe and I had just graduated college in Texas. We were expecting our first child and her family lived up in Minnesota, about a half hour from Minneapolis. And I had heard of John Piper. I had, as a teenager, as a college student, got wrapped up in the young, restless, reformed orbit that was kind of the instant draw. And then eventually, you know, I got accepted into the program, which takes quite a bit. I mean, there's there's 20 or less guys that go through the MDiv cohort uh, program together. So it is a cohort system. They accept like 20 guys per year, a little less than that. There, there was 17 in my cohort. Um, and you go through the whole four years together and it's like a set schedule. It's like a solid, it's a solid four years for the MDiv. Um, so really, it was a combination of things. We felt like God was leading us back to Minnesota. We we wanted to be near family, and I got in somehow. So, yeah. No secret handshake or not that I can remember. Okay. It's and I didn't even have a beard, so I'm not really sure how it worked. <laughs> I was on a wait list for a while. I was on a wait list for a while, and maybe that was because of it. But I ended up squeaking through without a beard. So, I was like, yeah. it would have been hilarious if you got through right when you decided to grow a beard. <laughs> that's right that's right yeah that's hilarious um okay so you're at you're at bethlehem what was it like early on yeah culture wise um when it came to the professors and the leadership of the church um i wouldn't i wouldn't have probably put these terms to it but in retrospect it was this combination of the most intelligent people in terms of iq that i'd ever been around in a christian environment like IQs off the charts, the smartest, and, and not, and really not just the professors, but the students as well. The people that I was in a cohort with were smart dudes. Like, yeah, intimidatingly smart guys. On the other hand, they were some of the lowest EQ people that I think I've ever encountered in a Christian context too. And it was that it was that weird combination. In retrospect, that's how I would describe it. I didn't really have the terms for that or the words for that um, as I was going through it. It just kind of unraveled as time went by that was probably the first the wave of how i understood the culture would you say going into this environment that you aligned with a lot of the young restless reformed movement where you're like bethlehem's gonna be awesome i totally am on board with all this stuff or were you walking in kind of like i'm gonna learn a lot (laughs) 
Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I I definitely thought I would learn, but literally, like literally from the almost the first day of the program, I knew I didn't fit in. And definitely, definitely by the first month of the program, I knew I didn't fit in. Um, a big part of that was, yeah, I, I was leaning towards Calvinism coming out of college. I came from a very anti-Calvinist school, Bible college. I was looking for a different perspective. I was leaning towards Calvinism. I appreciated Piper. And then in terms of like complementarianism, I had grown up with this vague complementarianism. I, I grew up in Gothard world. Uh, for those that are in like very conservative homeschool um, orbits, that was that was what I grew up Jay in. Jay and I just both and look so at you I, and shake our heads with our eyebrows like slightly raised. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, yes. buckle up. Mm-hmm. It yep. all makes sense now. Right, so... Absolutely. I mean, when you go from that to Piper, it's like freedom, you know, like yeah. it's it in a way it it's more free and it feels bigger yeah. than the very scrunched, suppressed um, culture that was before. So Calvinism leaning towards it, complementarianism, just growing up with a vague sense of that. But within the first month, specifically Calvinism, like it was abundantly clear to me. And I, and I have a point in my journal where where I wrote about this. I could not raise questions about Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Like literally every day um, in one class or another, I got the message that A, Calvinism was the only way to look at theology, at soteriology from scripture. And B, anyone who didn't was, you know, they were, they didn't have a high view of scripture. They were somehow inferior. They were not in our tribe. And those, that combination of message, I mean, I just knew within a month, well, I can't talk about this. Like, I can't wrestle through this. This isn't a free academic environment. It, it's very much the us versus them thinking. Mm-hmm. And I just shut up about it. Like, I mentioned it to a couple people. It didn't go very well. And so, for the most part, I I, uh, I just kind of closed that mm-hmm. off. So, I'd say for the first two years, I wrestled with that. And I just kind of knew, yeah, I don't I don't fit in. And then the complementarianism is a whole other piece that that came really during the last two years. For those that don't know what Calvinism is, can you give us just a really brief definition or explanation? A explanation? brief definition of, of I a, feel like you probably have like some brief definition statement version of this <laughs> yeah. because it was like every yeah. day I had to yeah. recite what Calvinism yeah. was. Is it Calvinism, yeah. <laughs> right. The only belief that matters yeah. that will get you to heaven. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, the class, yeah, summarize thousands of years of authoritarian theology in a few minutes. Um, no, like, I mean, the classic, you know, the classic formulation would be the TULIP um, abbreviation, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints are kind of the five key doctrines. Some people will say more or less or nuance it. It's, I, I'm pretty much on board with the total depravity, which is the sense that we are evil through and through, and God has to reach down to us with grace to save us. But in terms of the rest of the four things, I think the, they assume that God is withholding his grace, and, and that's the ultimate and really the motivating force behind us choosing to follow Christ or not. And I just, I always felt like the arguments that my professors were giving, my, my fellow students were giving, they just bit off more than they could chew biblically. And I never, I could never find them compelling and I could always explain it a different way or find someone that explained it a different way that I thought was more compelling. So that's, I mean, in a brief nutshell, that would be kind of the, the Calvinism that I'm dealing with. And it was all over. I mean, like Piper is, 
known for for that and and i think explicitly calvinist where others would kind of hedge around it he's pretty out there i mean i think if you are in the reformed christian world in a church or have been then this has been something that you've been sitting around a dinner table debating with someone at some point of your upbringing or adulthood even and i personally have been like i never ever want to have this conversation again multiple times like i don't care i do care but i don't care you know like i got to the point where i was just like why are we talking about this like god loves us and let's just live like god loves us and god i don't know how can you create systems with that type of thought theology there John, there's no way to create a system. And that's the danger, I think, of, of those systems. Yeah. Just not to pontificate for too much longer on that. But but we do, it does put a distance between us and God. And in a cloud over who God is, instead of saying, you know, God loves us, and we see that in Jesus, and if you ever need evidence that God cares about you and wants to save you, you look at the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that should be enough yes. for us. Um and something that obscures that, I think, is suspect from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. And any time that we yeah. think that we know everything, like we know enough to put an acronym on it about like God's gigantic, mysterious ways, I think we've probably missed the mark. Yeah. So so you get, yeah. you're, you're 30, 30 days in, you already feel like you're an outcast, or you don't feel like, I guess you, I shouldn't say an outcast, but you don't think outsider. Definitely an outsider, outsider. for sure. So you yeah. stayed, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you stayed the, the full four years. The sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, so here's the thing. There was good stuff about it, and I don't want to act like um, there wasn't. Um, I was learning a lot. Again, these are the most intelligent IQ people that I've ever been around. Um, I was challenged. I was thinking hard. I was seeing stuff in Scripture that I'd never seen before. Um and again, it's it it was a leap from my very conservative traditional homeschool um, context. So yeah, we we stuck through it. And again, I have no idea how. Like I worked early mornings. I worked at UPS um, like three in the morning till nine in the morning most days, Monday through Friday. And we had two kids along the way. I have no idea how we did it. Like I got five hours of sleep at best, and Chloe was the MVP the whole way. I don't, I, yeah, I think I blacked out for maybe four years. I don't know, but we did it. Yeah. And I think it was, it was the sense that, well, we did have a community there. Like the, that was part of it, I suppose, was the cohort system. You kind of automatically had community because you're with the same 15 to 20 families. And it did end up being families like 17 in our cohort, all of us, um, by the end of the program, we're married, and I think all of us had kids by the end. And, and um, we were in small groups with each other. We attended church with each other across the three campuses. We were kind of spread out, but you know, at various points, we connected with each other. So that kind of, especially our small group, was a lifeline for us for several of those last years, or um, at least the last year and a half, we were together with that small group, and that was kind of what got us through so all of that together, plus the sunk cost fallacy, uh, helped us get through the the four years. Yeah. So it seems like it was yeah. close, close group. At least those in the cohort, cohort, 
Uh, you guys were close. So there was that type of bond. You're learning from them. You're sharing things. Um, I worked for UPS too, believe it or not, for 10 years. Not what you did, um, unloading trucks. But sure. I did unload trucks sometimes. I don't know how you did that. That was like the worst part of UPS is the unloading of the trucks or loading trucks. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I and I supervised oh, did the you really? That's of even, guys. So I kind of had it easy. Oh, still, I just had to walk. Yeah. Um, anyways... <laughs> So yeah, you've got this cr- close group of people, you're, you're living together, growing together, but then you start to see some red flags. What are those red flags? I mean, I think we covered some of it in terms of it wasn't a free place to raise objections. There was definitely a line that you needed to walk. I saw more and more red flags in the last two years as I talked more with Chloe and processed through her experience and her observations of how she was treated how other women and like seminary wives, they call them sem wives, were treated. And that's when I really started to rethink the whole complementarianism thing. Um, during the last two years, just again, conversations with Chloe, observing really the, the theological and pastoral gymnastics that went on at the Bethlehem church as they, they processed through questions like, can a woman pray from the stage? Okay, can a woman read a scripture from the pulpit? Okay, can a woman read the sermon text from the pulpit? Like, these were questions. These were gray areas, just seemingly— In your class? In your classes? In our classes and or in, like, elders meetings that we sat in on or just conversations with the leadership. Because Jason Meyer, John Piper, others on leadership, again, the seminary and the church are so intertwined. They would be in, Joe Rigney, they would um, they would sit in for, like— they called it table talk, which is just like a, a little meal. Like you had lunch with a pastor like every week, something like that. Um, and you could ask him anything. And so, you know, we talked about this and we had mentors, like it was all interconnected, like, like so interconnected. Um, we had mentors that were pastors at the church that we would meet with regularly, things like that. So just the conversations. Yeah. They were, they were truly discussing. Well, we think that a woman could read a scripture in the service, but we don't think she can read the sermon text because the sermon text is part of the sermon. You know, it, it's just at some point it boils down to something completely arbitrary and just seeing that kind of play out in real time in that context where, to be honest, at that point, I thought Bethlehem did complementarianism as well as anybody. Um, even though I was kind of leaving it behind it or at least had serious doubts, it's just those type of gymnastics and questions where it's like, why is this even a question? Like, of course, why, you know, why can't women do this? Um, they really pushed me to reconsider a lot of things exegetically in scripture. And yeah, that it just kind of added fuel to the fire. I guess so, John, can't you see them really stressed out behind their table talk, talking about, well, you know, yeah, if Jonna goes upstage and shares scripture, I don't know how we feel about that. Yeah, yeah. I could be asserting, it could be too assertive and it might make a man feel emasculated by especially if they were uh, over 18 over 18 because we know so i mean like you're sitting there at these table talks do you comment like hey this isn't really that important or can we talk about something else or are you just sitting back and being like i can't say anything anyway so i'm just going to keep my mouth shut i'm an internal processor so i would follow along the Mm -hmm. the latter lines i would i would kind of just taking everything and to be fair there's a lot like again i'm i'm taking in a lot you know 
it's it was really exhausting kind of navigating each classroom period, each conversation, just like, who can I trust? What do I disclose? You know, what can I say? Um, when they, I know that like, if, if I talk about this, they'll think of me as like the outsider as not in their tribe. They already are going to be suspicious of me to begin with. Um, so for the most part, I just absorbed, I go, I'm an eight on the Enneagram if we're going <laughs> to invoke the Enneagram. So I just slid right into my five, which is, you know, when you're in stress, you just, you abstract, you just kind of view the whole big picture and just try to absorb. That was really most of yeah. the four years there. Um, until I hit the senioritis period in the fourth year, and then I was—I just didn't really care what bur- what bridges I burnt at that point. <laughs> I think to some extent. Did you talk to anyone uh, about about like within your cohort? Like, hey, I don't necessarily agree with some of the things we're talking about, or I may have a different view on it. Was any of that? Did any of that happen? Year two, I believe it was like near the end of year two. I we we had an intensive with John Piper entitled. Sightings of the Sovereignty of God, <laughs> appropriately. It was a J-term class, and it was basically oh, why Calvinism gosh. is right, again, which because we need it, and uh, at, at, at this Calvinistic school. And I, we, we had read Roger Olson's book, Against Calvinism. John Piper assigned that for his class. And I basically emailed my cohort, and I'm like, yeah, I agree with this. <laughs> like, And it was kind of like, um, it was almost a coming out moment. Like it yeah. felt almost like that. And they, I mean, for the most part, they were like, uh, okay, you know, that's weird. I had a, a little bit of a dialogue with one or two guys and then it just kind of died down. And then people just kind of, it was kind of like the joke. Like um, I didn't tell any of the professors cause I didn't want to deal with the fallout. I didn't think that they would grade me, you know, on the same plane, honestly. And so I didn't really disclose that. But it kind of became a little bit of an inside joke. The cohort would just kind of give me an eye roll or whatever, uh, whenever a joke was made or whatever, you know, Arminius was brought up or something like that. They would just all look at me. That was kind of, that was the extent of that. Um, in terms of like the egalitarian complementarian thing, we had one class period near the end of our program. It was, yeah, a couple months before we graduated. And it was just on that topic. It was within our systematic theology class on ecclesiology and i we had some good conversation i think overall in class it was frustrating because it was so one-sided i did have a good conversation after the class with one or two guys about kind of where i stood and at that point i'm like yeah i just i don't buy this type of thing um but for the most part it was it was pretty isolated and it was just i was focused on other things i i really enjoyed biblical theology just tracing kind of the storyline of scripture um from Genesis to Jesus to the church. Um, and I I enjoy seeing that kind of scope of theology. That was always kind of what got me excited, and that's kind of what I hung on to for most, if not all, of the program. And the other things, I'm just like, I'm just not going to push it. I'm really, I don't, I don't want the fallout. I don't know if they'll let me graduate if I'm not a Calvinist, and especially if I'm in, you know, if I view, if I take the egalitarian view. So, what battles are you going to fight type of What's thing? What's so you know? sad about that is if, and like it made it so that none of you could ask questions. None of you could have different viewpoints on these secondary issues that all, all of us would say, all of them too would say are secondary issues. Um, but Absolutely. they become like first order issues 
when it looks like the consequence of potentially being flunked out of seminary for disagreeing, which is like what you keep hearkening back to is this lack of academic freedom. But like, it doesn't make sense. It's so oppressive in every sense. Like it doesn't, it doesn't reflect a space that is godly to me. Like God is so kind and he loves our questions. And I look, I think about my kids and I think about, I mean, my kids will ask me the most ridiculous questions. Uh, Like they've thought of something totally different than how I would have thought And I might even be like, there's no, like, that is the weirdest question. There's no possibility for that to ever be a thing. But I still look at them and I'm like, I love that your brain is thinking about this. This is, excites me that you're able to and wanting to think about this. So the idea of our pastors being in this space where they're not allowed to have the freedom to think about that kind of stuff and joust and enjoy God's word, really. Like that's part of enjoying God's word is asking good questions and asking God to open your eyes to what he's saying. And I mean, I guess that's a whole other side that they probably would not agree with that. I I was just going to ask like, what, what was the, why were they so against other people having different opinions on complementarianism and egalitarianism? Like, it seemed like from what we can read, like it's an all or nothing thing. Why? why? Yeah, they're definitely moving in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's just fundamentalism rebranded in a, in a more polished set and it's driven off of fear and us versus them mentality. And the way that you keep people in the us camp is by beating the right doctrine into their heads. And when you can achieve that type of uniformity in their minds, they've succeeded. So I feel like that, I mean, that's to some extent, maybe put a little more crassly than they would, definitely put a little more crassly than they would, but that's that's kind of the MO for how they expect to make an impact and how they expect to train leaders. Yeah, yeah I've, al- I've always just wondered, like not only with complementarianism, but also Calvinism, that there seems to be this arrogance when they talk about their belief system, like that they, it's like almost passive aggressive. Well, you know, you can believe another way, but, and I just don't get that. Like, I, I don't care if you're a Calvinist, like, great, good for you. But shouldn't it be about what our belief, our, shouldn't it be about the cross, our belief in Jesus, the life and death in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, shouldn't that be what we're talking about, how we're treating others, how we're loving our neighbors, um, how we're trying our best to take up our cross daily and follow him? Like, isn't that what it's about versus us trying to get into this debate on Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever you may have out there, Catholicism? Like, I don't know. And I guess I I was just wondering from your perspective, like, what— knowing that you were in that space, like why in the world is this yeah. such a big deal to them? I I feel like, and others may not, others from Bethlehem may not come this far, but Bethlehem operates much like a cult. I mean, I, I think that's <laughs> very, very illuminating if you, if you view it that way. I mean, again, it's that us versus them. It's that we have the right doctrine and, and it's motivated out of fear to a large extent. Even though it's not readily apparent that it's fear, and and I think especially a couple of the professors are driving that, um, 
Yeah. It's but but at the end of the day, the culture is it's it's kind of irrational. You know, it it doesn't make sense, especially from the outside. But when you're in it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, and and it's very fulfilling, and it provides things until you try to step out of line. Until you you realize, no, I don't I don't measure up to this, or I don't fit with this, and I've got to kind of step out. It sounds like there's this box that you're allowed to be in, and you can even like ride the edges of the box. But as soon as you go out. They're going to put you back in the box. However, they have to put you back in the box. So if that's mm-hmm. fear and shame, then that's how they're going to do it. But you got to be in the box. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're all for sure. Yeah, it's all a cult. That's it's like a Scientology podcast now. And so. we are the last. <laughs> we have taken a different turn. So. Benjamin, when what what year were you with this incident? It was your senior year with the professor incident, correct? This was this was my this was my fourth year. Yep. This was literally the last class period we had for uh our systematic theology class, basically our capstone class and our capstone assignment. Um it was practically the last assignment we had before we graduated. So April of of twenty twenty. So yeah, so little little context we had to choose a topic for our for our systematic theology 3 class paper and the the focus of the class was on ecclesiology and a couple other things so ecclesiology study of the church i threw out something related to the church and in the prof shot shot it down and then i thought well i could write on women in ministry and argue you're just gambling which now, i ended up doing right I, I absolutely, um, <laughs> gamblers got to gamble, I guess. Uh, and I, I thought, no, I could write on women in ministry and my thesis would be why scripture permits women to serve as deacons, elders, and preachers. My wife, my, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. And my wife is like, do it. Like you've thought about this for a long time. You've wrestled with this for a long time. She's like, what are they going to do to you? Kick you out of the school? <laughs> it's foreshadowing. So, so that's what I ended up doing. You know, I had to okay the topic with the professor and to get it out there. So the professor was Andy Nacelli, who is the most militantly complementarian professor at Bethlehem. And a lot's come out about him recently, which your listeners may or may not be aware of. But anyway, he was the professor with the class that I'm submitting this assignment to. First, I kind of want to know, so you have this buildup over four years time where you're like yeah. basically ingesting mm-hmm. all of this and internally processing all of this. And you get to this point where you're like, it's now or never. So you just decide, I'm going to write a paper about all yep. this stuff that I have really thought about. I have studied, I have wrestled with. Right. Um, so is that kind of your perspective going into this? And are you feeling like this is going to be dramatic going into it? Yeah, I had no idea how it would go. I mean, I I was hoping the best outcome I was hoping for was they would basically say, "Yeah, none of us agree with that," which I knew nobody would agree with. I knew nobody would agree with my paper. Um I was hoping that some people would show me where mm-hmm. I was wrong. You know, where my argument was loose, where I could polish it up, where I could um explore something else and we'd have a good discussion about that and be done with it. Um, I tried very, very hard because I know like that topic is 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 a flashpoint. Like it's very hard to be ironic in tone when it comes to complementarianism and egalitarianism. 
and I tried very hard to be ironic. I, I wrote it with like a church in mind or, or kind of a sympathetic mm-hmm. disagreeer in mind. Um, but I had absolutely no idea um, how it would go. So I write the paper and I turn it in. And I even thought about before the presentation, because the presentation came about a week after we wrote the paper. I even thought about like emailing Nacelli and being like, hey, I wrote this paper um, just a heads up. And then my second thought was, why? That's absurd. Why would I tell my professor that I'm arguing for a certain, you know, Yeah, you're view? not doing anything like, wrong. This is academia. Like, this is what happens. Yeah, exactly. So, but but there was that internal pressure of, of like, yeah. I stepped out of the this box. This is somehow not okay. So, And it shouldn't matter, too. Yes, it I shouldn't matter out of the box. Because it's still, I mean, it's still your perspective. You're not like you're, you're not like changing you're not like trying to rewrite Christianity and be like, oh, by the way, Paul was really Jesus. Like, it's not like something radical. Yes, that's right. Like, you're just saying women that's can right. preach and be deacons and elders. Like, ooh. So it's yes. like insane that you're right. even having to like and play mental gymnastics where you're like, how are they going to perceive this? Should I warn them about my conspiracy theory paper? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and and in retrospect, it is. Yeah, it was crazy. So this was 2020. We had moved all of our classes completely online um, because of the pandemic. So we were presenting over Zoom. This whole classroom thing happened over Zoom. We were given, I believe, nine minutes, eight or nine minutes to essentially present our papers. And presenting our papers looked like the instructions given us by Nacelli were... You read your thesis for a minute or less, and then they ask you questions for seven or eight minutes, and that's it. I mean, my paper is like 20 pages long. Like, my bibliography, I had like five pages on my bibliography. It was insane. And so it wasn't nearly enough time to cover the paper. And And this was like a short paper anyway. It wasn't enough time. So, yeah, in this, in these presentations, Nacelli was always very authoritarian in how he led class. Like if, if you spoke up and it was like, well, can we take it this direction? He'd be like, whoa, 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 who's the quarterback here? Like comments like that. Literally, if if you raised the question, sometimes he would just shut you down. And he definitely had his favorites who he would like tussle with and kind of spar with and others who he just kind of shut down or just kind of jump over. And yeah, and his whole classroom format was basically getting you to disagree with something that you read in the reading like we would all be staring up at the screen of this Excel spreadsheet and all of us had to type in uh, an affirmation of what we read and a critique of what we read. And for our classroom time, all we would do is go through the critique column. So you'd be raising what you disagreed with with the reading. Sometimes we're reading his book <laughs> or somebody from Bethlehem and and then he would disagree with your disagreeing or whatever, you know. So it's just, it, it was a very authoritarian at the very least, we could call it authoritarian way of, of kind of doing class. And there's lots of stories that I could tell there. But that's kind of a sense of it. So in this in this presentation day, Zoom period, Zoom class period, there were two guys that presented on baptism and essentially made a case for pedo-baptism, for baptizing infants, which this is a Baptist seminary. That's not okay. He Nacelli effectively questioned their salvation in front of the class. Which is... L- Totally logical at this point. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? He told one of the guys, quote, I am concerned for your soul, end quote, 
after the guy had presented his paper. Like, this is the flavor of, of how things are going down in the class. <laughs> so you have to be, like, heart racing. Yeah, your paper is screwed. <laughs> I am totally on adrenaline. Like You're just, like, sweating on this Zoom call. Camera off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I wish. I wish he would let us. Uh no, but yeah, and I'm like the eighth person to go of 17. I'm like right smack in the middle. So I, I'm like watching this and just kind of like, yeah, bracing for the worst. And it was worse than I could have imagined. Um, I So I read my thesis, Scripture Permits Women to Serve as Deacons, Elders, and Preachers Under Normal Circumstances. He asks the first question. And the first question was, I didn't know you held that view. When did you take that view? As if, like, it was wrong. Again, yeah, yeah, as John has said, I'm stepping outside the box, right? Again, an eight on the Enneagram, if we're going to invoke the Enneagram. I found out in this classroom period that uh, of the fight or flight, I am definitely fight <laughs> because I just blurted out, like, the first thing on my mind, which was I took this view while at Bethlehem, and you were part of the reason why. And he's like, oh, my gosh, well, why? And he's stunned. He's like, well, why didn't you come and talk to me about that? And <laughs> as again, as if like he had right. sinned against me or I had sinned against him and somehow we needed to like have this conversation and work this out. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't take a uh, egalitarian view. And I'm like, well, you're not the person to talk to about this at Bethlehem. And he's like, what? You know, again, stunned. And again, I'm in fight mode. I'm like, I don't trust you. And when I said, I don't trust you, like all of the air just like seeps out of the room in the Zoom. Like everyone is just like, holy cow we just went from zero to a hundred like yeah. we just escalated crazy benjamin was presenting his paper and all of a sudden like he just yeah. confronted nacelli on this very personal thing so we hit this peak of i don't trust you we'd escalated to that point and kind of realizing okay this is where we're at i i'm like okay i really just want to present my paper can we talk about this offline and everyone kind of turns to nacelli and he's like, no, after what you just said, I can't continue on until you explain that. And so I just, I, again, I'm getting adrenaline just thinking about this again. Like adrenaline up to my eyeballs. I'm trying to get to my paper. I just want to present my paper. And apparently I need to deal with this interpersonal stuff with my professor. It, it, was, it was so unfortunate that this is supposed to be an academic exercise. And all of a sudden it's this personal thing between him and I, which obviously there was tension there, but let's deal with this outside of the class. Like this is not the time for it. And, and again, like I asked specifically, can we take this offline? I think I may have asked twice when we got to that point, before we got to that point of, I don't trust you. And he's like, no, you, you have to explain that. I can't go on after what you just said. And so I raised in a very <laughs> upset way. I raised like three specific concrete things that he'd said in class that were quite misogynistic. While I'm doing this, uh, guys in my cohort jump on and they, they're like, Benjamin, that's really disrespectful. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just being honest. Like, you know, I don't know what else to say. And I ended with, I, so I raised these three specific things. And then I said, I don't think you have a right to speak to this topic. I don't know why you're like, I don't think you have a right to teach on this topic. So it's definitely a confrontation happened in this moment. Absolutely. And he's just kind of stunned and not really saying much at all. I don't know. So, yeah. So again, it, it escalates up to, I don't trust you. Can we please talk about this offline? No. Uh, okay. Well, here's the issue. You know, here it is. 
And then somehow we transitioned from um, me telling him I didn't think he had the right to speak to this issue to questions about my paper. <laughs> like, I don't, I, oh yeah, there's my paper. Oh yeah, let's talk about my paper. So I got, I got like two or three questions and none of them were of substance. One was just accusatory. Like you're making Paul mean something he never intended to mean. I'm like, I explicitly explained that here in my paper. And then finally a guy gets on and he'd, he'd been one of the three guys that in, in the process of me saying what I said was just like, that's really disrespectful. How dare you say that? You know? And I'm like, I'm being honest. I just want to present my paper. Well, he gets on the last question and, and he says, he called me Ben, which is funny because I go by Benjamin. But after four years, he was still calling me Ben. He's like, Ben, I just want to address you. You need to repent. What you said was completely disrespectful. And Nacelli might not be your elder, but he is an elder. And if you're going to be an elder someday, you need to learn how to treat elders with respect. I said, I don't receive that. I said, I, I'll think about it. But you're forgetting that I did not want to talk about this. I explicitly asked to not talk about this in the classroom. I just wanted to present my paper. And then I turned to Nacelli in the Zoom and I said, Dr. Nacelli, I was not trying to be disrespectful. And he says, Ben, what you said was sinful to the core. You need to stop blaming others. You need to be quiet. I'm not going to come talk to you. You need to come talk to me. Boom. That's the end of my presentation. Sinful to the core? Sinful to the core. I had just literally said to his face, I was not intending to be disrespectful. And he comes back with what you said was sinful to the core. I mean, he was really emboldened by the guys in my cohort that were speaking up, which, which is one of the lessons that, as I think about it in retrospect, like he didn't have to do a lot of abuse because he had guys, mm -hmm. you know, out doing it for him. You know, really like toxic organizations operate on that pyramid where someone's at the top, but a lot of times it gets handled at the bottom. And my cohort mates were very much at the bottom in the classroom incident and then in the, in the aftermath. So yeah, that was those three things. What you said was sinful to the core. I don't think I'll ever be able to forget those lines. What you said was sinful to the core. You need to stop blaming others. I wasn't blaming other people. I was really just blaming him if, if we're going to do blame here. You need to be quiet. I'm not going to come talk to you. You need to talk to me. Those four things. In that moment, were you able to say that was not sinful to the core or were you immediately like internal? What did I just do? Was it me? What happened there? Right. Yeah. It was a little bit of both. I was just stunned. Like I, I was, I literally was thinking, what was my sin? Like, where was my sin? You say this was sinful. I had just told you this wasn't intending to be disrespectful. Where is my sin? He just shut me down. He told me to shut up, ended my presentation. So it was like I, you know, I couldn't say anything else right. or, or I'd appear even more disrespectful. Yeah, that was what was going through my mind. And again, high adrenaline, definitely going into fight while the other guys are just, you know, <laughs> flight or fawn. But we're all just like captive to this Zoom. Like, and I give, I'll give it to, like, this was, yeah. a, this was a traumatic event for my cohort. Um, and, and I know that because other guys have said so. Even in emails where they're attacking me, they're alluding to the fact of how wow. traumatic it was, that they had nightmares about this Zoom and that it really fractured the cohort, which I totally get and totally agree with. Like All of us were traumatized, whether we would admit it or not. And some guys are just lashing out. Some guys are trying to suck up and sick, be sycophants for the man, you know, for Nacelli. Some people were just 
kind of dropping yeah. off because it was just so intense. But the real question yeah. is, what grade did you get on the paper? A 75. Oh, I thought you had gotten an at the zero or <laughs> right. negative 10. or <laughs> Right. The, the comments on there were like outrageous. Like clearly my paper had triggered him. Yeah. And the comments were very accusatory. Like I sent my paper to several people who'd graded like master's level or college level Bible papers and all of them to a person gave it an A. And when I showed them the grading, they're like, that's ludicrous. Like, I mean, even like when it came back down to this, my conclusion of my paper, um, when I just restated my thesis, his comment was, you really think you demonstrated that? Question mark. Like, <laughs> that was literally like, the, that was the flavor of comments where it was like, if I haven't, show me where I haven't. Like, don't just be sassy, basically. Right. <laughs> he didn't um, te- like teach me then. Right. That which is the yeah, whole exactly. point of this is like you to teach me. Why I was here. Exactly. Yeah. So so I yeah, so I'm stunned. Um I'm shut up. I don't know what's going on. I think we take a break after my presentation in the classroom. We have a fifteen minute break. I go upstairs in my house and I'm just like sobbing and I come up to Chloe and I don't I didn't cry. I don't really cry a lot. I had cried like Chloe had seen me cry like twice mm-hmm. in our like five years of marriage to that point and then I was oh. just crying for the next two weeks essentially um, but I go upstairs and I'm like I don't even know what happened that went worse than it possibly could have gone totally disoriented I come back downstairs a little bit late from the break log on to my zoom and on the camera is Dr. Nacelli's wife she'd never been in any of our classrooms in person she'd never been on a zoom with us period and she's talking about what a great man Andy is, what a great husband he is, and how, quote, he explains things to me when I don't understand them, how he's a great father to their daughters, how she thinks all of the women at church would say the same thing about him. And she's like, I know it looks like I'm trying to be the big guns here. I'm really not. And I'm thinking, no, that's exactly why you're here. There's no reason for her to be well, there also, other than to target me. How does this fit in to the compliment? Like, she's talking to a group of men. <laughs> right. In a classroom setting. How dare she teach a man? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're not living up to their own standard here. So basically yeah. now no. you're the bad guy in this class that has made it so bad that you've wounded him so much that his wife is now getting involved and you've gone beyond wounding him. You've hurt his wife. Absolutely. And she has to come in, or at least she has to come in to defend his honor, apparently. It sounds like what wounded him was the title of your paper, basically. Like, I... I mean, that's what's so ins- like crazy is that that's really what you need to apologize. It's almost like he was asking you to apologize for, for having a different belief or thought. Right. Well, and right. I think it's, I'm sure that you saying you didn't trust him is probably what really set, lit the fire, which absolutely wasn't a great spot to do it right during class but you didn't want to do it during class you had asked twice not to do it during class yeah and and that was one of the things really in the immediate um after class time that i realized was so messed up like in what context as a pastor if you have someone coming up to you and saying you know engaging in dialogue and they say i don't trust you 
in what context do you pry and press them for more? Like in front of everyone, like I just couldn't conceive even then, like in the days after the class period, I'm like, how is that pastoral? Like, how would that be okay for any pastor to do? And it was completely out of line in the class as well. And what's crazy to me is that you guys are all there because you want to be pastors. You're learning here. This is, this is how we treat people that don't trust us. This is what the, the leadership is showing you all. Absolutely. And I had cohort guys emailing me, telling me that me saying, I don't trust you was sinful mm-hmm. in itself. <laughs> like, it's like, no, like that is, yeah. You were just being honest. It's absurd. Yeah, I was being honest. And that is, every person's right. You, Anyone can say, I don't trust you. And that is part of you being an autonomous human being. And it should be respected. And you shouldn't trust everyone. <laughs> There's reasons not to trust people. And it's okay to not right. trust people. Absolutely. So I felt like his wife comes on. She speaks her piece. She leaves. Oh, gosh. He comes back on the Zoom. I just remembered this. And he says something to the effect of, you're a good wife as she's leaving the camera and then jumps back into paper presentations at the end of the class period. Several guys are like, thank you, Dr. Nacelli. You've been like one of our favorite professors. And we're really sorry that this had to be the way that we ended it with you. Like we're really sorry. This kind of tarnished our time with you essentially nothing to me. I log off again. I go upstairs and I'm, I'm just like sobbing. I talked to some people on the phone um, that afternoon kind of process through, try to process through what happened. Again, Nacelli had said, I'm not going to reach out to you. You need to reach out to me essentially to ask forgiveness, mm-hmm. right? But at like 6 p.m., I got an email from him saying, listen, and it's just between him and me. He's like, listen, I'm sorry if I offended you. I wasn't trying to pry. I was just asking questions because I was confused. I'm trying to live peaceably with all men. So I'm writing to you. I'm rooting for you. And I had the thought, no. <laughs> I said, you're not going to drag me in public and then try to reconcile in private. That's not how this is yeah. going to happen. And so I sent out an email. I mean, and, and again, for anyone who's questioning maybe that conflict resolution model, I mean, Paul does that in Philippians 16 when they, he's, he's falsely accused and thrown into jail publicly. And when they try to drag him up you know, privately, he's like, no, like you threw us in jail publicly. You're going to bring us out publicly and you're going to explain what happened. That's not how this is going to go. So I sent out, I ended up processing through it and, and I sent out this email to Nacelli and to the cohort. Basically, I said, listen, I wasn't trying to say, Dr. Nacelli, that you were a bad husband or father or man in the church. However, the way that you addressed me in class was inappropriate and spiritually abusive and manipulative. And I explained why. I ended with a paragraph basically saying, I don't honestly expect anyone in the cohort to understand this or to identify with this. I wouldn't be surprised if this separated, you know, if this broke friendships. I hope that's not the outcome of this. It would be very sad to lose those relationships. I'm still hoping for some resolution, essentially. And I I send this email out. Within like an hour, I had... The two of the three guys that had spoken up in class had replied, basically saying, yeah, this email is worse than what you did in class. You are mischaracterizing the entire thing that happened. This is unbefitting to a Bethlehem seminarian. Like all of those things were being said. They were piling on. I had a, a phone call from a number I didn't even recognize, but it was a guy in my cohort who was going to just lay into me about what I had what done. 
I did get one text. I got one text from a guy who, who in my cohort, who's like, bro, <laughs> he's like, what happened in class today? I probably wouldn't have done that, but I hear where you're coming from. Nacelli didn't handle it well. I love you. I hope you're okay, essentially. And that meant yeah. like the world, both to me, because the only person to speak up and be like, no, this wasn't okay to some extent. That meant like the world to me, it meant the world yeah. <laughs> to Chloe, who is just relying on secondhand information for all of this and is like, why is Benjamin just like in a sobbing mess on the floor, you know, and and just kind of hearing from different people in the cohort. Anyway, so that was kind of the initial exchange. And finally, a fellow student jumps onto this email thread after guys start to pile on me and is like, listen, the charge of spiritual abuse is a serious charge. I'm going to forward this on to the academic dean, and I'd encourage the rest of you to stay out of this. And I was like, thank you. Thank you for being the adult mm -hmm. in the room here. I, that's really what I wanted. I, I got that email out because like, I felt like shut down. I felt like my voice was silenced. I needed to say something. I needed to respond. And then him kind of passing up the line was exactly, in retrospect, what I would yeah. have wanted. So that's how, that's how the initial thing went down. In terms of the aftermath, like several things happened simultaneously. Well, first of all, the academic dean, Brian Tabb, was on sabbatical at this point, out of the picture. So we had an interim academic dean who was, at the time, my mentor and my friend, really the only one on the faculty that I trusted. So when the student forwarded this on to the academic dean, that's who it went to. And he, this guy, frankly, didn't do squat. <laughs> like The best thing I got from him was the assurance that the school would still let me graduate. But he essentially was just, he just kind of sat back and was hoping that Nacelli and I would somehow sort it out. That was really his approach. He really did not initiate stuff. I called him and sobbed on the phone for 35 minutes telling him what happened. And he's just like, oh, okay, well, I got to go talk to Nacelli about this and get the other side. And then When you're sobbing on the phone, are you able to, or are you understanding like what it is that's making you feel the way you're feeling? Can you like put words to those feelings? Sure. Or do you feel like your body was just having this response and you didn't even have the words? Like you're like, what is happening to me right now? Right. I had no words. And it was definitely, I had P, I had full on PTSD symptoms for two weeks. I was, mm. I was high on adrenaline like the entire time. I was crying all the time. I had nightmares. I was waking up in the middle of the night with the line sinful to the core running Ugh. through my head. I would wake up in the morning with that line running through my head. I couldn't focus on my kids at work. You know, I was a supervisor at UPS. I could hardly, hardly focus on the things I was trying to do. And I was like mm. hyper aware of everything. It was definitely like a physical PTSD yeah. response. The other part of it and in kind of the relational fallout was almost overnight, we lost practically yeah. all of our relationships with the cohort. And did you kind of know that as soon as it escalated to where it did? Like when you broke in that Zoom call, when you went on break, were you like, I just lost everyone? No, I, I think it dawned on me as time went by, I was still hope. Like initially, I realized that no one understood, but I was holding out faith that like right. they would at some point, like just with the right information or with the passage of time or with Nacelli yeah. saying, "Oh, well, I did screw up there," taking at least some responsibility for what happened. Um, that would change the dynamic, and that never happened, and still to this day hasn't happened. So to this day, like I talked to like two or three of those guys in the cohort, and Chloe talks to out of seventeen, maybe one or two. 
And these are people, again, we were in small groups together. We were in church together. We served together. We cried together. We had babies together. We delivered meals for the meal train together. You know, full four years of, of grad school together in very close proximity and community. And overnight, yeah, I was outside the box and outside the community, practically. Did you have any hope when you wrote that paper that, like maybe this will be the time that Nacelli engages. Like, was there any hope in you for that? And do you like was that maybe? I'm asking because I'm wondering if part of your grief was like the realization that all of the reasons that you'd stayed quiet for those four years were true. You're like, <laughs> you kind of like you yeah. knew it, but now now you're faced with it and confronted with it, and you don't have any questions about whether or not it's acceptable to be outside of the box that they have. It is a weirdly validating thing because I could have made it all up in my head and just been quiet for no reason for four years. But with that, it's pretty clear that you step out of line and you pay for it. There's consequences. So it, it is a complex type of thing looking back realizing that no it wasn't in my head like you do step out of line and and really what it boiled down to was i wouldn't have ever i don't think been able to do all the right things to present what i presented like the sheer fact that i presented a case for the egalitarian view somehow put me in a category that yeah that was outside the rules you know that the normal rules of community didn't apply yeah so it was a weirdly validating thing in that respect so processing through all that, yeah, like overnight, basically losing practically all those relationships. I knew like they were talking about me behind my back and it, they were, you know, they'd been texting about the situation and I wasn't included in things like that. I had isolated conversations. I was open to talking to individual guys in my cohort and I did several of them and some of them were very traumatic conversations. Some of them were productive, but practically mm-hmm. our whole community evaporated overnight after that. Simultaneous with a lot of this, as part of our quote unquote reconciliation process or what I would call resolution, like that was the thing that academic dean is like, well, I'm still hoping that some some measure of reconciliation is possible. And I'm just like, I don't think that's the right word here. (laughs) Like that's I'm I'm looking for some resolution. And and this was a theme, and this is this is Bethlehem, this Mm -hmm. total lack of awareness about power diamond power dynamics or really a willful ignorance of power dynamics. Um, They will nuance the heck out of a leader's failures and say, well, such and such and this and this, and this is why. But if you're a congregant or a member or a student and you get out of line or you, you make a mistake, everything is thrown at that person. They're using the word, like the academic dean is using the word reconciliation and just on a different trajectory. I ended up talking with two of the professors at the school, the counseling professors at the school, and both of them said, yeah, that was an abuse of authority. They were the first people to validate that. After, after hearing the story, one of them said, yeah, that was an abuse of authority. The other said explicitly, that was spiritual abuse. So they encouraged me to go and talk with other students, past and current students at the seminary, at the college, and see what was their experience like? Is this a pattern, essentially? Is this a pattern with Nacelli, um, or is this just kind of something that you guys had that played out? Why would they ask you to do that? That's a good question. I mean, I feel like 
the motivation was it needed to be more than Benjamin has an issue with Nacelli. It has to be more students, more evidence. And they simply didn't know people that would have had the same experience. And maybe they thought that I was in better proximity to ask those questions, but that was kind of how it shook out. No, I just, that's just odd to me that like, if there's an allegations, if there's an allegations uh, against a professor or someone in an organization, you would think that there would be an internal investigation, not going back to the victim and saying, prove it. Cause that's what it sounds like to me. It's more like, Hey, you need right. to prove this because we don't believe you. But that's that's just what it sounds like. Right. Yeah. It did put it did put the weight on me to figure it out. I did reach out to twenty plus students. No, I reached out to more. I ended up with about twenty plus students who'd witnessed or experienced something similar from Nacelli. I either talked to those people or I heard from them. Uh, I heard about them. Excuse me. And I found out in all this process that. Students had come to Brian Tab, the actual academic dean, just a year before all of this went down, and brought the same concerns. And these were guys that were close to Nacelli. like they they were closer than I was. Went to his campus and things like that, um, with essentially the same concerns, and essentially they were ignored. And so at some point, it it kind of dawned on me that this isn't just an individual; this is an institutional thing. I, you know, I was giving the benefit of the doubt to the institution, to the BCS leadership and thinking, well, if they just knew about this, they would take it seriously and do something about it. They had known about it and they didn't think it was serious enough to merit doing something about. That's crazy. So it all kind of, yeah, it all kind of <laughs> came to a head when it ended up, there were three students and my three students, including myself, that came forward on behalf of 12 total students who we'd all filled out this survey and kind of given testimony, kind of statements about um, these patterns that we'd seen and experienced from Nacelli in his classrooms. We ended up taking it to the church, to the elders of the church. Um, one of the elders kind of sponsored us doing this. We got it to the elders of the church. The elders of the church said, oh, this has to do with the seminary? Well, we're going to punt it over to Brian Tab, who is also an elder, but also the academic dean, and he's going to deal with it. Brian Tab, instead of talking with the students all together or, or really diving deep into it, he Zooms with us individually, the three students. His Zoom with me, well, in a different Zoom with a different um, student, he essentially threatened that student with a lawsuit for initiating this whole process of taking a survey and canvassing students for these experiences. But then in Brian Tab's Zoom with me, he basically said, and this was Brian Tab. Did Brian that? Tab did that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yep. So you can get sued for trying to say someone was abusive to you and asking if anyone else had. Yes, been. for canvassing students without the school's permission. Apparently, like it, it was, it was a veiled threat. But they, it was, it was. But they asked you to do that, right? Well, the the elder did. The one elder did. Yeah. Yep. Oh, and and yeah. um, it was the student's idea, and he did it. You know, confidentially. You know, checked all the boxes. But yeah, it was a veiled threat. Like if we were a bigger school, we would sue you for defamation. The Zoom with Brian Tab, this happened like, so the classroom incident was April 30th. Brian was on sabbatical. He gets back in June. I hear nothing from him whatsoever until like we raise these issues. Until we raise these issues, he's completely silent about all of it. Until this funnels through the church and works up to him. 
Um, that's when he actually gets with me about it. In the meeting with him, he doesn't reference the other student testimonies. He doesn't reference the pattern at all. What he says was, you know, Andy could have done some things differently in that class period. What happened does not meet my criteria for spiritual abuse. And I'm still hoping for some measure of reconciliation between you and Nacelli. Did he give you what his criteria of spiritual abuse is? Absolutely not. Not at all. So we're going to say that's not spiritual abuse, but we're not willing to actually say what is spiritual abuse. So we're going to leave it this nebulous thing that everyone can just kind of guess. Yes, absolutely. And again, it's it, it demonstrates so much. Like like Brian Tab, those words, that Zoom, like I felt like I was held captive after like after he got that out. It was just like, no, like I'm not going to do this. He was pressing me for like a face-to-face meeting. And, and by the way, I had emailed with Nacelli. We had this email exchange um, after a while. And, and I'm like, look, you know, I, I need you to acknowledge these four things that you did wrong in class that were abusive, that were spiritually abusive or, or inappropriate. He acknowledged about half of them with like the most formulaic robotic apology I think I'd ever seen. Wouldn't go any further and was pressing me for a face-to-face meeting. And I said, I'm, I cannot meet with you face-to-face. There is no way I can do that. I'm, I'm traumatized just thinking. Like, I'm, I'm getting triggered just thinking about it. And so that's how, well, when I said, I can't meet, you, I can't meet with you face-to-face, I'd rather do this over email. He's like, well, I will not do this over email. I would only do this face-to-face. And that's where the whole thing ended with Nacelli. Did he not want it? Fast forward to Brian Tab. Why didn't Tab. he want it in writing? He just didn't want it in writing. He didn't want it in writing. This, is, this was his MO. And this is what I discovered with talking through other students was the way he would do it was isolate the person on the phone or something that couldn't be tracked. There wasn't a paper trail in phone or in person. He was an intimidating guy. He would pull the, well, I'm your pastor card and darvo them hard you know how i i really feel bad that me as your pastor like you view me that way as your pastor type of thing and then that worked with enough scenarios that that's his mo so of course yes that's why in my mind in my opinion that's why he's pressing for this face-to-face meeting and unwilling to continue it on the email and I, i'm not going to do that i that was the initial time when i'm like i'm no so fast forward to brian tabs meeting with me and he's pressing for the same thing and I I just I'm not gonna do that, and uh, he just kind of kept circling around to the thing. I felt like I was held hostage for about an hour. He's like, "Well, you know, Paul encourages Udian Syndicate in Philippians to reconcile, and these things happen. These things happen in a marriage, you know, where you have to. There's differences of opinion, and you have to sort it out." And I said, "Yeah. So, are you gonna make like an abused wife face her husband face to face? Like, that's not how these things work." But it it just illustrated to me again the willful ignorance when it comes to power dynamics and the the inability the decision not to see the patterns when it comes to their leadership and overlook the patterns um again to nuance what the leadership does but to isolate the mistakes or the stepping out of line that anyone else does and that's where it just that's where it kind of ended he said you know this doesn't qualify as spiritual abuse in my mind and I'm pushing for some measure of reconciliation. And I finally just had to say, Brian, I have to go. And we hung up. And that was pretty much the end of that. I mean, good for you for knowing, uh, basically not falling for it, right? Not falling for that 
that uh, it's almost like what is gaslighting, gaslighting and, and trying to turn it back on you. I mean, good for you for not following that. The thing that I get really sad about, though, is like just in talking with you, I can tell that you had a really good grasp on not only your own mo- emotional IQ or your emotional intelligence, but you were able, you were able to recognize these things, that these things weren't normal that they were attacking you and they were putting you in positions that would make you uncomfortable. And that still had an impact on you physically and emotionally. But I just keep going back to like, these men are elders and pastors. Like to the average person, lay person, I mean, you're talking about like, just harm beyond belief. Like soul crushing harm. And I, I I just keep going back to the way they operate it's almost like it's just water off their back. It's like just another person, another comment, and they just keep going. No second thought. And yeah. it just breaks it breaks my heart. And it scares me too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really scares Absolutely. me. Absolutely. And and that those things that you've just articulated are some of the main reasons why I felt like I needed to speak up about this. Because it concerns me too that that Bethlehem is platforming these guys. Bethlehem has a global reach. They're exporting their brand of Christianity to unreached people groups, to like the world, literally the world. And they have a pastor training school. They're replicating this way of interpersonal relationships across the United States, across the world. It's it's a very scary thing. <laughs> it's a very disturbing thing that they wouldn't acknowledge this or recognize this. And they're exporting it all over the place. Wow. So, so that, all right. So all of this happens, you still graduate, correct? Yes. After this conversation you had with Brian, how much longer did you have left in your time at Bethlehem? Right. Thankfully. So that conversation happened long after I'd graduated. I graduated in May. I graduated like two weeks after the classroom incident. I had two class periods after the presentation and they were for a different class. I am grateful to this day that we were not living like near Bethlehem. We were not attending church there because we did attend church and everyone's essentially required to attend church there for the first two years. And then after that, you're encouraged or expected to pursue internships. And sometimes you pursue it at Bethlehem. Sometimes you don't. I pursued it somewhere else. And so we were not attending church at Bethlehem. We were not um, wrapped up in that, which would have been a whole different experience. We had already moved about a half hour east. And so we'd kind of mentally disengaged from um, that place. And so that was all helpful. That was, I'm very grateful for that to this day. We had kind of the the start of a supportive network outside of Bethlehem with Chloe's family, with other people and friends. And so I had to, I had to navigate about two weeks of just awkward PTSD ridden sleepless nights and days and then I had graduated and it was just kind of, wow, I'm done with seminary and I'm going into therapy. <laughs> that's, that was essentially what it was. <laughs> for the rest of my life. Now. Yes, that's right. Which I encourage for anyone, especially yeah, those who have, sure. have experienced these types of situations. Oh, man. This is just horrible. Do you feel like the component of knowing like, hey, all these men are going to be pastors and this is the level of care and emotional quotient that they <laughs> that they have do you feel like that contributed and added to the weight you were carrying 
Like, to me, I'm a feeler, so it's not abnormal for me to cry. <laughs> so in that situation, sure. I would have fallen apart. Yeah. I think that would almost be the most traumatizing part of it for me is this idea that all of these men are now going to go and and lead flocks and like this is their idea of how to to treat someone they disagree with so you're like basically like on the 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 beginning first step to knowing the damage that's going to happen yeah that's definitely a weight that i think chloe and i wrestle with kind of regularly is at this point with bethlehem you know not only are they launching pastors all over the place but at bethlehem proper the church they've doubled down on everything that really was churned up with my classroom incident with other students issues with Nacelli and with the other things that happened in the church they've doubled down on all that and so from our perspective they're not going to change course until there's legitimate like yeah. sexual abuse something off the board scandalously wrong if they even bring that to light you hate to assume that you know you hate to predict that but that seems to be the trajectory that they're going because we you know sexual abuse follows spiritual yes. and emotional abuse like this is kind of the first step on the grooming platform on the trajectory to lead to that and it's definitely a weight that we carry in something that is pretty crushing to think about that this is the church that this is the church that's doing this and this is like a flagship church that that people look up and has a global reach and has piper behind it and all of this it's, it is a very heavy thing to think about. I just always get blown away at how these churches just discard people that don't agree or buy in or have problems. And like what strikes me is I don't have a theology degree, um, you know, by any means. So I'm not as educated as you on uh, the history of the Bible or interpretations. But when I read the Bible, I mean, I, I see Jesus as. Uh, the direct opposite of that, right? I mean, he is going yeah. after those on the fringes. And the ones he's discarding are the religious elite. And he's That's setting right. them up to say, hey, like, this is not the way. Get in line or get out of my way, essentially, That's you right. know. Uh, I am paraphrasing for Jesus. I hope he doesn't mind. So, it's the message <laughs> that translated. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, what breaks my heart, though, is like I hear your story and like they just discarded you. And, and like, I don't care how much education you have about the Bible, that has to rock your faith in some way. Yes and no. I think the buildup over the last four years had shown me that I had no faith in Bethlehem by the time that I was presenting that paper to begin with. I knew I wouldn't be working in that orbit of churches. I knew just because of my theological and personal idiosyncrasies, that was just not the route to go. Going through that environment, it did force me to peel off the, the excess layers and really get down to the essentials of why I believe in Christianity, why I believe in Jesus. And so at the end of the day, I just found that the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return, was a more compelling, more beautiful, more persuasive story about reality than I could find anywhere else. And that was really what sustained me, I think, as I read scripture, as I saw just the layers of this and how you can trace the same story of Jesus through it all, um, that is really, I think, what I ended up landing on. That was the foundation that I knew I wanted to build on. And anything else, I could hold with 
loose hands to some extent. But that was where I was going to work from, and I wasn't going to leave that. And so it did rock my faith in an experiential sense, and in the sense that we all just wrestle through uh, suffering and (laughs) traumatic experiences and being in a place where the authority is abusing their authority. But in the sense of what do I do with my faith? That was that was pretty firm because Jesus had come through for me in ways that I had not expected and was surprised by throughout seminary. And so that was never in doubt. Well, and Jesus is in the midst of that suffering more than anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Although, so I've got to, I got to get on my soapbox for just a second with, <laughs> with John nine, because that was the passage that really jumped out at me as I'm processing through this and, and just hit me as like, this really speaks to, people who've been abused, who've been abused by the church specifically, because that's the passage where Jesus heals heals the blind man who'd been blind from birth, and people had associated that with his sin or with his parents' sin. And then for most of the chapter, for the whole middle of the chapter, Jesus disappears. He's gone. And while he's gone, the religious elite, like you said, Jay, the religious leaders come in, they, they keep coming back to the guy's sin or what they perceive to be his sin. And they keep bullying him. They they hold the threat of excommunication over his parents' head, over his head. They they ridicule him as ignorant, as a sinner. And all of this confusion, he's just trying to get you know his feet on the ground and figure out what had happened to him and ends up, because of what he's saying about Jesus, they throw him out. And it's right then, at the end of the story, where Jesus comes back. And it's just a picture, and this is what I would say to anyone who has experienced abusive situation at their church is going through that now or is trying to process through in retrospect is I would just point them to this picture of Jesus coming back as the good shepherd and making it right. He comes and he, he doesn't come with condemnation or with a critical spirit. He comes and he says, do you trust me? Do you believe in me? And he invites the man to walk with him and he turns the tables on the man's abusers. He turns the tables on the Pharisees, on the religious leaders and says, no, actually, you guys are the ones that have no clue, and I'm going to make this right. And that picture of Jesus coming at the end, after we don't know where he is, we don't know what's going on, and Jesus coming back and making it right is something that I've been able to hold on to, and I feel like that's life-giving to people who've been in a similar situation. Absolutely. And I think something something interesting about that even is the, yeah. the idea of the trust in that. Yeah. And you coming back to that trust and the fact that Jesus isn't like, you you better just trust me. Like he gives you the space and time to like learn him in relationship and to learn that you can trust him. Like he is the ultimate right. trustworthy yeah, relationship, absolutely. right? And as much as we don't want that that suffering, that experience, it does build our faith in some ways if we can walk with him, if we can come through it. Yeah. I, I, so I want to know your perspective. I wrote this question because um, I, being a pastor, um, we, you know, John and I struggle a lot with when we talk with these these people. Um, we talk with storytellers and we hear their stories. Uh, what we struggle with is um, the church is a beautiful thing, but from the churches yeah. that these storytellers have come from, it is not. It is broken in a way that is. Um, hurtful, harmful, sinful, and going back to that space can be very traumatic, um, and trusting a church again can be very traumatic. 
And story after story, you start to ask yourself, what's wrong? Yeah. Like what, what is wrong with the church? Because this should not be happening in churches at this level and this frequency. So what are your thoughts on how the church can be a place of healing and restoration for the spiritually abused? Is that possible? It's such a good question. And I totally feel the weight of it. And for me, I'm relatively new to pastoral ministry. And so I'm going to be talking about trajectories um, more than like decades of experience of this is how, this is five ways to build a, a spiritually healthy place for people who are abused. <laughs> right? Sounds like a great gospel coalition. Right, right. <laughs> Article Just breaking out the listicle here. <laughs> no, but in terms of trajectories, I we're talking about something that's at the cultural level. A safe place for for believers, a safe place for people, a place of healing happens at the cultural level. Um, I mean, a big a, a book that's influenced my thinking hugely it was a church called Tove by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, and mm -hmm. that's basically the question that they ask that you just asked Jay, and the, and they try to answer it. And so they provide both the the diagnostic for why do churches fall apart in these hideous, often very tangible, very um, scandalous ways. And then they try to chart a way forward. They try to give a prognosis as to these are things that we can build into our culture. They're really focusing on the spiritual gift of goodness uh, or the, the fruit of the spirit goodness mm -hmm. and how to, how to cultivate that in all areas of the church. So I take a cue from that in that this is, we're talking about something that's at the cultural level. Um, because again, with Bethlehem, I wouldn't fault any one person or individual. I, we were all part of the culture and as intangible as that is, that's really the force behind it. And that's why, like, if you try to fight it, it's so impossible is because you're not fighting an individual. You're fighting a culture made up of many individuals, a system, absolutely, an in institution. So when it comes to making the church safe, and even it, the question, is that even possible? I think it takes intentionality over time to change a culture. And that has to happen at the the leadership level, I think, first of all. And when it comes to how I see like my trajectory with my church, how I kind of process through this, I think three things are, are huge. One, leaders have to be self-aware. We have to know ourselves. We need a bigger vocabulary than mm -hmm. just sin. Certainly, we need the word sin, and we need to be able to understand that, but we need personality words. We need organizational health words. We need words that other scientists can give us besides scripture as well to just throw light on who we are as people. So we need self-awareness, first of all. Two, we need awareness of power dynamics and how they're at play in the church. I feel like that was a theme with Bethlehem was just they were, again, willfully ignorant about how power was used and distributed in the church. I think that's a common theme mm -hmm. in many of the stories that you guys hear from is it's this, it's kind of like Saul in the Old Testament when it, it's this pastors, when they're insecure, are just like Saul, when uh, Samuel has to find him and he's like, you think you're so small, but you're the king of Israel. Like, you don't think you have power, but your insecurity is driving all of this abuse, this harm that you're perpetuating. And you find that in insecure, narcissistic yeah. pastors. So aware of ourselves, aware of how power dynamics work, which is why I think both books like a church called Tove, Something's Not Right, Redeeming Power, 
anything by Chuck DeGroat, why podcasts like your guys are so important, hearing stories, because you see the patterns. Like it's, you hear the stories and you start to connect the dots. And then the third thing for leaders, I think after we become self-aware or we constantly fight for self-awareness, after we are regularly fighting for awareness of power dynamics and how that's distributed in the church, we give that power to Jesus. And we submit to the ways that he would wield that power. We want to use that power in our church or influence or authority, whatever word you want to throw on it. But whatever influence, authority, power that elders, that the leadership, the pastors have, we want to wield that like Jesus would. And I think when those three things are in place, there's a chance. There's a chance that that churches would be safe. Mm -hmm. That's going to take intentionality and it's going to happen over time. I think too... Just one more piece of it is theologically, we have to get outside of the white evangelical industrial complex of thinking. We have to reach back in time. And I'm not saying Jonathan Edwards, I'm saying like, you know, Augustine and Chrysostom and people way back. And then we need to listen to, like, as Jamar Tisby would say, learn theology from the disinherited. Listen to people who've never been on in the inner circles. Listen to people who have always been on the fringes and have always had to be a safe place for each other because they're all in this together and they're all outside of, of the gate. And so those are other things that I would say for weaving that into how a church could possibly be a safe place. That's so helpful. Thank you great. so much. I have um, one more question for sure. you, if you don't mind. And then if you don't feel like good. answering it, you don't have to. Something Jay and I talk about often is the lack of elders and pastors that are willing to have this conversation even. Um, and we think there is multiple things at play here. This is my own assessment. <laughs> Not This isn't like, I know for a fact this is what's at play, but I think there is a like a job security dynamic that's going on, right? Like if you start speaking out, you will probably lose your job or get kicked out right. of your seminary or right. <laughs> all these things. And then I think also there's the the dynamic that you experienced in class, which was you're in sin for saying something, which is not, it's not right. a sin to say something, but it's almost like this like ethical moral code that many pastors and elders ascribe to in these settings. I would really love if you would have any encouragement to any elders or pastors out there that you would want to give as far as, if they see or know of abuse happening in their congregations, in their circles, what would be your encouragement yeah. to them? Well, I mean, to the first kind of half of your question as to why, you know, pastors are kind of hesitant to talk about these things even, I, I think it's a combination of we've forgotten that we're really just sheep at the end of the day. Like we've forgotten what it's like to be shepherded by Jesus. Mm. And also I think we have, in addition to kind of a lack of self-awareness and a lack of awareness of power dynamics, we have kind of a malformed understanding of conflict resolution as Christians. We are too conflict averse. Mm -hmm. Like we, we view it as a liability and don't look for the opportunities in it and how it's a clarifying thing and how sometimes Jesus initiates conflict and those types of things. And in terms of the second part of your question as to what would I say to like elders or pastors who maybe someone discloses abuse or or how they should treat that. I think Jesus would always side with the people on the low end. 
of the hierarchy of the power dynamic. The the Martin Luther King quote essentially where he says a church that doesn't stand up for justice has lost its integrity and effectiveness in the world. Um, that's a paraphrase, but that is what it comes down to is if we are unable to speak the truth, if we are unable to pursue justice for especially the ones that have been abused, the ones that are most vulnerable, we've really lost our identity as the church. We've really stopped functioning, at least for the time being as a church. And, and that's going to come back on us like that. Rep- we represent Jesus that's not who Jesus is. And do we really want to be in that position as leaders to have to give an account to that? I would rather step out of ministry. I would much rather step out of ministry than be in a place where I have to be accountable for those types of situations, knowingly, willfully pressing over those things or suppressing what people bring up to me because that's not who Jesus is. I think, um, just to why I was asking that question, something that's come up in me a lot lately that I've been processing through is like, there are elders and pastors throughout years of ministry with my story um, that just covered it up or looked the other way or didn't warn people or didn't lay down themselves, which I granted they were probably experiencing abuse right. as well, but they had the title of elder and pastor and protector, you know, and it really has been weighing so heavy on me is as a woman coming out of a complementarian setting that I ended up being the one that had to put myself on the line to draw attention to it. And so I really would just want to say, like, I'm so encouraged by you as a pastor that you have stepped in like from the moment i met you on twitter i was like thank god there's a man out here that is a pastor that is willing to say the hard things because he wants to love and protect others and it's rare and it shouldn't be so i just thank you for that and i'm so grateful for the opportunity to shepherd or i don't know if shepherd is the right word women can be shepherds too that's really kind of you, Jonna, though. And I, I really appreciate you guys inviting me on. I know I'm, again, adjacent to most of the folks you you talk about. And it's it's really a privilege to be with you guys. Yeah. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, 
and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 39. For John A. Harris, I'm Jake Hoyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Mm-hmm.